Hey, welcome to the 127th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to political analysis to newsday essays to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's episode features Lindsay Jones, the terrific NFL writer for The Athletic. And this was a really fun one for me, coming on the heels of last week's Peter King episode. Because in many ways, Lindsay is where Peter was a couple of decades ago. A tremendous reputation, a hot spot for sports journalism, a reliable accountant of information who knows the game really well. So consider this the second part of a two-episode series, Lindsay Jones' Electric Boogaloo. And it's right now on Two Writers, Sling and Yang. All right, Lindsay, I want to jump right into this. You just told me this. Sure. It's, you're in a blizzard right now. You live in Colorado. Today's the trade deadline. Your three-year-old, Lena, I'm guessing is at preschool somewhere right now, correct? Yes. Yeah. Schools are open. I mean, we for some reason, they decided not to cancel school because I guess it wasn't snowing that bad at 6 a.m., but we're supposed to get like nine inches of snow today, and uh, we're, I'm totally awaiting the call that they're, they're closing, and I have to go pick her up right as the tra- trade deadline is hitting because it's 4 o'clock Eastern, 2 o'clock Denver time. It's exact right time to go pick her up. <laughs> I feel like the big question hanging here is what the hell are you doing this podcast for? I mean, you got the trade deadline going on. You got your kid. You got the blizzard. I don't know. If I, you know, <laughs> before I even get into any, everything like uh, the, the NFL trade deadline used to be a non thing. Like it was a nothing. Maybe you'd have one trade somewhere where the Bears get the 49ers fifth wide receiver and they send them a late round draft pick. It matters now. Yes. It does. Yeah. I mean, there, we've had multiple big trades just already in the, the, the two weeks prior. You know, there was the Jalen Ramsey deal, um, two weeks ago and there was Marcus Peters that was part of that whole deal. And then Muhammad Sanu and Emmanuel Sanders last week and Leonard Williams the day before the trade deadline. I mean, there's, it, there's a lot of guys that are moving and it, the NFL landscape has just really changed that just in the last couple of years that teams are trading more often. I think they're realizing that draft picks aren't quite as valuable as they used to be and teams are willing to, you know, trade draft picks for for proven players, um, especially guys on expiring contracts. And that's a lot of what we're seeing right now is teams realizing that, you know, there's a lot of really bad teams right now, I think, who just are realistic here at week eight that they're out of it and willing to, you know, part with players to accumulate draft picks. And then there's a lot of teams that think they can make a run. And yeah, it makes it a lot more interesting and exciting. But yeah, it does make today kind of busy. That's for sure. Let me ask you this. I was wondering about this. Like you have you have a kid. You have this full-time job. You have, uh, you know, a million concerns in life, like the the planet is heating, population is exploding, there are wildfires <laughs> in California, there's a blizzard in Colorado, we have a crazy guy as president, blah, 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 all this stuff. I see a story by you, grading the trade, Rams move on from Marcus Peters. How much do you care? And do you, like, <laughs> I actually, I really mean that, like, how much do yeah. you give a shit that Marcus Peters was traded to the Baltimore Ravens? Uh, well, not that much. I mean, it was interesting when it happened, I guess, but, you know, Big picture. I mean, I, but I think one, one of the things that I think has been kind of interesting is at the athletic, we haven't done as many of those factoring free agency. We did a lot of like, let's grade the moves, but this probably sounds bad. I don't have to care as much about all the minutiae. You know, we, we actually have a lot of these debates, you know, these talks in our Slack channels and texts and stuff about like, does this, does this deal or does this move or does this news headline reach a standard that we feel like we need to jump on? And 
a lot of times now we're saying, no, we don't have to do something right away. Maybe it's part of a bigger picture story about, you know, all trades and why the league is trading more right now instead of we having having a jump on jump in on every little one. Or it's about, you know, let's have let's just have a big discussion thread and open it up for engagement with our subscribers to talk about um talk about the moves and gives provide some context to what's going on. So, um, yeah, but in terms of like, I give a shit, um, you know, I mean, I care about the big picture, I think. And that's when you kind of look at these moves, like what does it mean big picture for the whole kind of landscape of the NFL, a little less of like what it means for one team specific, you know, salary cap or, you know, draft picks structure for next year. This is way off subject. I, as a New Yorker, I was fascinated that the uh, Jets recently traded Leonard Williams to the Giants. Yeah. Here's why. But here's why I'm fascinated, though. I remember when he was drafted by the Jets. Everyone I know who is a Jets fan was like, yes, this is the best. And oh, my God, we got this guy. And he fell down to our spot and blah, blah, blah. And then I honestly don't think in the ensuing whatever it was, three years, 98% of football fans would recognize Leonard Williams if he knocked on their door and said, hi, I'm Leonard Williams. We, we get really excited about the draft. We, we debate the draft. We analyze the draft. The draft, the draft, the draft is really fascinating. It's almost like we care more about the transactions themselves than we do absolutely. about the players playing for it. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. The same thing happens with free agency where, you know, we get, and, you know, we're part of it too. We're part of it as the media. We do this where we, we put out, you know, our top 50 free agents and we're, you know, restlessly following where these are guys are going to sign. and you know, for the most part, the the guys that are impactful are not guys that are signing big deals in March. It's it's pretty rare. You know, look, Le'Veon Bell, who was one of those guys who were, we were, you know, so anxiously tracking last year, he's on the trade block right now. I mean, he could be traded like literally while we're having this conversation. And he was one of, you know, the big fish in free agency last year. So yeah, it really is more about like the transaction and the news and the 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 movement and you know I think part of that everybody plays Madden everybody plays fantasy football we all like to think of ourselves as kind of armchair general managers um, but you know the the big moves are not the impactful moves generally are not the ones that draw the biggest headlines at the trade deadline or especially at free agency back in March do you find the games more interesting or do you find the actual transactions more interesting um I mean I mean maybe not like the minutia of the actual transactions um. I think the kind of all the the movement behind the transactions and then the the philosophies that go into it and the team building and you know how teams choosing to do things the the politics that go on between you know with teams when they're trading with each other I think that stuff is all really really interesting and which teams kind of keep up which teams fall behind which teams are you know consistently, you know, consistently frustrate the rest of the league because of the way that they do business. I think all of that stuff is really interesting. Um, and then when you ask about games, it's kind of a, it's an interesting subject for me right now because we kind of went into this season where I decided I pitched this to my editors and my bosses back in February or March that I didn't want to cover very many games in 2019. Uh, for the first time in my career, I'm home mostly on Sundays now. So it's been a very different season right now where I haven't been in stadiums and I'm starting to, I don't regret that decision, but I am, I'm missing it a little bit because, you know, in the NFL, there's only 16 games. So the games actually do matter. But from a covering a, the league standpoint, being at a single game doesn't matter as much, I think, as being able to kind of get the gauge the entire landscape of what's going on everywhere. So I do love the games. And I think we're getting to the point in the season where the games are mattering even more 
we're going to pick and choose our spots of which games we think we really want to be at, where I'm going to go and write columns, um, or if it's part of a, you know, a bigger picture feature or something that I'm working on. So um, I don't know if that answered your question at all. I probably, I'm actually fascinated. Wait, but this actually fascinates me. So it's a, it's a Sunday in Lindsay Jones's house and Nina has <laughs> a play hectic. date with Jessica and <laughs> whatever games are on. Like, cause I always think, I do think, I was a baseball writer at SI for a long time, and I think I could have done that job without watching many, if any, baseball games. I could tell you who's on the trading block, and I can tell, I can build relationships with general managers, and I could look at the statistics. And it's almost like we build up the importance of what we do and the difficulties of what we do sometimes and the intricacies. And, but it seems like you can be an NFL writer and not go to a single NFL game. Or am I overstating that? No, I think that's possible. I mean, I think you can't be a beat writer. Like if you're covering a specific right. team, you know, and I did that for, you know, I covered the, the Broncos for the Denver Post. Um, and then when I was on the national desk at USA Today, I was at games most weekends, not every weekend, because we would kind of get on a little rotation of somebody would stay home to write kind of the everything we learned around the league this week type of story. But mm-hmm. um, I think as a national writer, you you certainly don't have to be. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who don't. And I that's kind of one of the things that I learned as I was figuring out, you know, I, this is my second year or my second season at The Athletic doing this job and figuring, looking around like who, do, who, who are the other national writers that I really like? Who do I like reading? How do we how can I do this job differently and better than I have before? And I think one of those ways was that, you know, maybe the best way to you know, get a sense of what's going on around the whole league is to not be at one specific game every week. Um, I think that might change a little bit more as the season, you know, as we get closer to the end of the season, I do plan to be at playoff games, um, all those sorts of things. But, you know, I think you can make calls on Sundays, you know, everybody is working in the league. So you can talk to agents, talk to PR people during games, all that kind of stuff. You can get players on the phone after the game. So you can still get your kind of reporting done without having to be tied to a specific you know, a specific stadium. Do you think the players give a shit? Do the players give a shit what you write? I'm not, I don't mean you any more than anyone else. I just mean, do they, do they care? Yeah. Um, a little bit. I mean, you know, they always say that they don't pay attention to what people are saying about them, but you know, I don't know how much they're going in and actually like reading full columns, you know, that they're jumping in and reading, you know, Peter King's Monday morning quarterback or, um, but they, they know what's going on. And I think they're more aware than ever of kind of the, the discourse around them. And, you know, every single NFL locker room that you go into now, they've got televisions all around it. They're on the sports channels all day, whether it's NFL Network or, you know, ESPN. And they have, you know, first take is going on in the locker room. So they hear it. So even though they say that they don't pay attention, they absolutely know what's going on. And, you know, they very much, you know, for the most part, I think they do understand what's going on. They care about their images um, and what's being said about them. So, you know, I don't know if they, you know, they care necessarily about the, you know, the 1500 words or whatever that I'm writing specifically from that game, but they definitely care about the narrative that's going on around them and their teams. So the last two weeks, I've had two two pretty fascinating guests on. I had a couple of weeks ago, a guy named Mark Kriegel. He was a sports columnist at the New York Daily News back in the, uh, in the 90s. And you walked into a clubhouse, a baseball clubhouse back in the 90s. Every player had a copy of the Daily News and the Post. And if you wrote something about them, they were, they were pissed at you. If it was negative, you know, they would go off on you. They call you to locker and motherfuck you to death and you get in an argument with them. And it was very New York. And when I was talking to Peter King, he was saying how nowadays 
you know, this is Peter King to, to me and probably to you is a big, big deal in NFL coverage. And he was saying how nowadays everyone just wants to be on with Deion Sanders yeah. uh, on the NFL network. And I don't know if you've seen this in your whatever decade, a couple of years in the business, the shifting of the landscape of what players pay attention to. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, just because, you know, when I first started, my first year covering the NFL was 2008. I've been covering sports since 2004, covering, you know, high schools and colleges and stuff. But I've been covering the NFL since 2008. And, you know, I remember when Twitter started, you know, I, I started the Denver Post first Broncos Twitter account. You know, I was on Twitter. Our handle was actually at Denver Broncos because the Broncos didn't actually have Twitter yet. And like wow. the Broncos had to come and like get that handle from me. Um, <laughs> because, Did they pay? Yeah. You know, and they didn't, although we probably should have like fought them for it a little harder than we yeah. did. Um, this was, you know, 2009 or so when that happened. And, you know, we changed ours to like reflect our coverage. I think we became post Broncos, which reflected our coverage a little bit more. But yeah, I mean, it definitely has changed. And, you know, it was one of the, the questions that I had when I left, you know, when I was leaving USA Today to go to the athletic, you know, leaving kind of a traditional media was that, you know, USA Today still has that brand name. And it it wasn't so much with players themselves, you know, like if I'd walk up to a player in the locker room and say like, hey, it's Lindsay Jones from USA Today. Like, you know, they they know what USA Today is, but I don't think there was this kind of attachment, but to publicists, to teams, to agents, to, um, you know, any of the sources and stuff that you might be dealing with, that legacy media still carried a lot of weight five years ago, you know, and I'm sure using the name Sports Illustrated or ESPN or whatever kind of opened a lot of those doors and they would want to know, oh, this is going to be on the cover of USA Today, where, God, I, I hope there's a cover of USA Today in six months. Right. The stories will go in that there's an actual print edition. So, you know, I think the where you work, I think, doesn't matter quite as much as like, you know, are you credible? Are you going to do a good job as, you know, can we kind of, can we trust you to tell the story? Right. And, um, you know, I was, I was just a little, I had, I had questions of like, you know, when I call people and say that I work at the athletic, will those doors still be open? Will they have to, will they know who it is? And I've had a couple of times where I've had to do a little explaining of like what the athletic is, but um, it's been a lot less than I was expecting it to be. I think mostly it was, you know, just kind of pitching, <laughs> pitching stories the way that you always do and hoping that people are receptive to it. And, Want to give you want to give you the access that you're seeking? I say this respectfully. Like, did you know when you were at USA Today? Did you feel at all like you were sort of on a sinking ship? Mm, I mean, that, I mean, yes and no. I mean, you work for Gannett, and Gannett is has kind of a nasty reputation around the journalism business. And so, yeah. you know, I, it was it was hard to ever feel like super secure knowing that you worked for a major media company that tends to do really crappy things to their employees. And, but there was always kind of this feeling of like, well, you know, we're, we're at the very top of the USA Today food chain, you know, they kept adding staff, they were doing, you know, they, so the, the five or six years that I was there, it always felt like I never was personally like a, that worried for my own job, but we did go through multiple iterations of restructuring and trying to figure out what our newsroom was going to look like and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, there's a lot of jokes, you know, I, I don't know how many radio interviews I did while I was at USA Today. People say like, oh, well, re read Lindsay's stuff at USA Today when you're staying in a hotel and, you know, you chuckle along with it. Oh. But it is still like a legacy brand and something that everybody is really familiar with, that print product. And for a long time, that print product was still making money. And that seems to maybe not be the case anymore. You know, Lindsay, you've inspired me in this podcast 
here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to split this 50-50 with you. You and I, <laughs> we get a time machine, okay? That's a little, it's complicated, but we're going to find a time machine. We're going to go back in time 10 years. We're going to buy at Taylor Swift, at Denver Broncos, at New York Jets, at Kobe <laughs> Brown. We're going to buy every Twitter. We're yes. just going to own them and we're going to sell them. Are you with me? That's a good business model. I like it. It is amazing that you guys were at Denver Broncos. It's amazing that newspapers and the difficulties that they're facing and everyone in the media is facing had this like piece of gold and just gave it to the Broncos. I'm not saying they were wrong to do so, but it's kind of amazing. You know, I think it was like the, you know, one of the guys from DenverBroncos.com was like, hey, you know, I, you know, I think it was one of those like, don't make us legally come after you right. to get this. And, you know, but I did have, but then the Denver Post owned the handle that I had. Like it was signed into our, like her ethics policy or something that was like, you know, social media handles that were started by the Denver Post are owned by the paper. So while it said at Post Broncos, like it had my name on it, my picture, I think I built it up to, you know, 35,000 or something followers when I left for USA Today and they made me believe it. And uh, a colleague of mine at the Post said that I should like, should I, that I should have fought them on it and I didn't, but he said that I should have changed my password, like changed all the passwords on it and like made them come get me send lawyers and stuff to come get me. And I just decided I didn't want to burn my bridges at the Denver post to, to keep it. But I had to like start my own Twitter, you know, a new Twitter handle and go back and start with, you know, a couple hundred Twitter followers and build it all back up on my own. And I still see that post Broncos Twitter account. And I'm like, those are my followers, you know, those <laughs> but we're just going to put this together, Lindsay, and say that you were the worst Twitter fighter in the history of mankind. That you had, <laughs> you had true. these things, and you just gave them away like a wood. I know it's it's it really is true. I I guess it's just about learning to pick battles. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my kids Casey and Emmett. And children, I have some shocking news to share. You've decided to stop locking us in the basement. No. You decided to wear deodorant. Not that either. The news is, earlier this week, the Cleveland Browns cut one of their players after he made a bunch of death threats on social media. Is that it? I thought that was pretty shocking. Dad, a USFL player named Greg Fields punched his coach and threatened to kill him. And one of the teams signed the owner's ranch hand to be its punter. And a guy was put on the injured list for slamming his junk in a trunk. What's junk? Dad, it's a penis. Oh. The point is, compared to the USFL, some brown threatening to kill people is nothing. And that's why listeners of this podcast should go to 503-sports.com and order all sorts of USFL hats, t-shirts, and jerseys. That way, they too can slam their penises in trunks. That sounds painful. Yeah, it is. Wait, I want to talk to you about something, and it's all inspired by two stories you sent me. So you... You basically did these bookend stories about Demarius Thomas. Um, yeah. You wrote a story about him when, when he was a rookie uh, with the Denver Broncos heading into his rookie year. And it was um, it was in the Denver Post and it was Broncos rookie receiver Demarius Thomas has run a tough route to success. Um, it was ran July 24th, 2010. It is a freaking great story. Like, this is a great. I had no idea the story ever existed and I'm better for having read it. It was you going with him to jail in Tallahassee to visit his mom and his grandma who are both in prison for selling crap. I had no idea about any of this about Demarius Thomas. You may go your whole career and never write a better story than this. This is a great. I know, which is somewhat depressing, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's so great. When you, when you so asked me to send good. me my favorites, I was like, well, obviously the Demarius Thomas story. And then I'm like, oh, okay, well, what else have I written in the last 10 years that I like? But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was probably my favorite story I've ever written. Wait, I want to read the lead real quick, which is it's a Dateline Tallahassee. And you wrote, Demarius Thomas propped his left arm up on the table to rest his head on his large hand 
As he did, a new tattoo on the inside of his biceps peeked out from underneath the sleeve of his gray Denver Broncos t-shirt. Thomas, the Broncos' number one draft pick this year, and the receiver the team hopes will make Denver fans forget about Brandon Marshall, was a celebrity at the Federal Correctional Institution, a low-security women's prison in Tallahassee. Inmates shouted out his name across the visitor's room, and Thomas signed autographs. But the thing Katina Smith kept focusing on was that ink on Thomas's arm. You got another tattoo, she said? Thomas pulled both sleeves off his shirt up to reveal the, uh, to his mother the full sight creation, the word family on the inside of his right biceps and first on the inside of his left. I'm actually fascinated. How did you end up going to prison? One of like five times he ever visited his mother in prison with Demarius Thomas. Right. Well, it was a, it was a lot of legwork. I mean, it was a lot of like getting clearance and stuff um, and then kind of recreating a lot of different you know stuff of all of their because he had not really been to visit her. And that's part of what's in the story was that, you know, she was arrested. His mother was arrested when he was nine and she went to prison. And for basically his entire childhood, he didn't go to visit her. And, um, you know, it was kind of just rebuilding this relationship and, you know, her having to follow his kind of budding athletic career through phone calls, through newspaper clippings, you know, and in college, you know, when he played in college, she was able to see him play a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it was a lot of legwork of like getting clearance into this jail. I mean, it was probably months. I mean, what that story ran in late July, I probably started it, started trying to get it all set up in May, like right after he was drafted. Um, you know, cause you knew it, like it, it wasn't a secret that his mother wasn't it was in prison and that his grandmother was in prison, but nobody had really ever written the story, like really, really written it. And so we just decided to do it. And it's since been done again, like, you know, ESPN went and did it, but we were the first ones to like actually go and, you know, meet mom and grandma, spend time in jail. You know, I went to you know Dublin, Georgia, his, the, the town where he was raised, spent time at the house where with the people who ended up raising him, went to Atlanta to meet his dad. I mean, it was like one of those, you know, whirlwind, week, you know, four or five day reporting trips, multiple cities. And, and, uh, you know, and I was grateful that he was willing to kind of open it, open himself up to it. Because at that point, he didn't even, he didn't even know me, you know, he had literally been drafted what like the last week, April. And, you know, I went ahead and just started doing this. And um, it kind of really set off, a, you know, we had a pretty trusting relationship for his entire career in Denver and um, which you know ended about a year ago, which is the other story that I sent you. Um, and it was just kind of interesting to, just to watch kind of his family during that, because at the time during his NFL career, he's still playing, he's with the Jets right now. Um, mm-hmm. But his, his mother got released from prison. She was pardoned by president Obama. Um, and she was actually able to watch him play in the Super Bowl um, in 2015 when the Broncos won the Super Bowl. His grandmother was later pardoned as well. And she is now out of prison. So it's just their family has, um, changed dramatically in the, oh, guess what, 11 years since I wrote that story. Well, why do you think he allowed you to do that? I, honestly, I don't really know. Um, he, I asked him a couple times and then I just texted him a lot and called him a lot. And he said, okay. You know, it's because he, it, it's crazy because he didn't already really know me. You know, like he, and it's not like he would have been with the Broncos already and been in camp and everything. And, you know, I don't, I, I think he's just a fairly trusting guy and a nice kind of open guy by nature. And I think maybe I handled it right. You know, I, you know, I made a lot of the the, the initial phone calls and pitched it and how we were going to try to do the story and how we, why, why we wanted to do it and what we wanted to do. And uh, I mean, I, you know, hopefully it was just that he kind of trusted me off the bat, but um, 
Honestly, I don't know why, because I think today, I don't know if people would be as open to just jumping and doing it um, kind of off the bat with somebody that they didn't really know. And are there, all right, so you, you alluded to this, and, and I've done this many times, so it's not an indictment at all. You write this piece, and you have scenes in there, and I'm guessing some of the scenes he either told you later, or yeah. what's your general take on that? Um, if you want to set a scene in a story, you weren't there to witness it, but someone gives you the intricacies. Um, are you hesitant to do that? Do you feel like that's totally fine? Is it a necessity? Yeah. I mean, I think when you're doing kind of like a longer form thing, you kind of have to. Um, and I think it's really about like how strong your reporting is and the what people have, you know, having to get really, really detailed information. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I rely on that tactic a lot, but I think sometimes you have to, um, to kind of really get the full time to get the real sense of everything that's happened. All right. So we fast forward. And it's uh, eight years later and you do this piece about, you know, he's been traded to the Texans and he comes back and you sort of do this um, timeline of his day returning to Denver to play the Broncos. And I was just thinking about this and you even use the word like we talk a lot in journalism about building relationships with subjects and um, getting to know them. But we never really explain like what that means. And what I mean is I don't think in my career as a sports writer. I've ever had an athlete send me a holiday card or invite me to his or her wedding or even ask me really like, Oh, so where do you go to college? You know, like, I don't know. How would you explain sort of what it is to quote unquote build a relationship with an athlete? Yeah. And it's, it's certainly not like building friendships. I mean, I think I could probably count on one hand, like guys that I've covered that I would maybe even like, probably not even maybe even less than that and these are guys who are like post-retirement you know or guys that have retired where you know now we do talk about our families and we follow each other on instagram and you know those sorts of things where there's it's a very that's a very very small number and you know i've been covering the nfl since like i said since 2008 um but i think it's just it's about establishing kind of a trust that I will that you can trust me to accurately and fairly tell your story and that, you know, if there's something that you want to talk about off record, you know, but then I'm going to go to you to ask you, you know, maybe stuff that is just really like, okay, explain this schematic thing to me. What exactly happened on this play? Um, You know, sometimes it's that stuff. Um, But I just think a lot of times it's, you know, from my perspective, how I've kind of always viewed my job is that too, I think too many people in sports media and especially kind of in this age where everybody is like a Twitter analyst and a film guru and everybody has access to all 22 and stuff is that I treat my credential like very, very seriously. And that, that enables me to get to know these players, these coaches, these scouts, whoever it is kind of as people. And that's where the relationship is. And I'm not, you know, I'm I'm certainly not trying to befriend anybody. um, But I do, you know, care about what their story is and, you know, a lot of times that's, um, you know, finding out about their their mothers and their fathers and their children and where they went, where they grew up and where they went to school and what they're interested in away from football. And um, I think that's kind of the relationship building that's important to me. And that's the stuff that I think ultimately you, you, it doesn't always turn into a story, but sometimes it turns into a really good story. I just find it fascinating. Like, um, you know, everything about a guy like Demarius Thomas, like, you know, you know, tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff about Demarius Thomas. I'm guessing he doesn't know your daughter's name or even if you have a daughter. Or am I wrong on that? Um, no, he does. Well, he might not know her name. 
but he definitely knows I have a daughter. And part of that was that I also was like pregnant around the team <laughs> and was on maternity leave and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, but I mean, there are a handful of, do know, yeah, like I saw, you know, I ran into DeMarcus Ware in the press box. He was working for NFL network now doing an NFL or an NFL films thing. And I saw him in a press box two weeks ago and, um, he came around and he said, Oh, how's your daughter? Which was like, Oh, you know, that's the, but yeah. there's, so the, I, I think that is kind of rare though, <laughs> but some, some guys do. Um, a lot of guys don't give a shit though, <laughs> but you know, but there are a handful that do. I've, uh, I've told this story on here a long time, but it's one of my favorites is um, when Buster Olney used to cover the Yankees for the New York times. He was just telling me how he lived and died with that team for three years. And if some guy had a sprained ankle or some guy, Twisted his toe or somewhere, but it was all very hyper, hyper important to him. One year he, he broke his like hand and he shows up with a cast on his hand and he's in the locker room every single day. And he said, one guy I asked, Hey, what happened to your hand? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I was like, being pregnant is a different, like noticeable thing though <laughs> that, um, and I was like, the timing of when I was pregnant was not like, I was not at my like, biggest during like the middle of the season my daughter was born in july um so it was almost like i didn't see players from february to may and then all of a sudden i came back and i was like gigantic and people guys were like oh my god i didn't know you were pregnant and i was like well i wasn't gonna like tell you at the super bowl like so i know this is the big week of your life but guess what's going on with me you know that just wasn't <laughs> something that that necessarily came up um but you know when i was you know covering you know, I was like covering Broncos mini camps or whatever when I was 36 weeks pregnant. And it was it was very noticeable. And I had uh, multiple players ask me uh, about it. Only one who inappropriately touched my belly or without asking. I wouldn't have given permission to anybody to ask. Only one just reached out and touched it on his own, which is bizarre. But just don't do it. Yeah. I mean, literally, like, unless it's your wife, like, just don't touch the belly without asking. He comes back to Denver. It's uh, you write this piece on November 4th, 2018. It was really a really, really cool story. Sort of inside Demarius Thomas is very surreal day. You basically did this timeline of him returning. Um, did he know you were going to be doing this? Did you like, how did you go about getting the little intricacies sort of you got off of his return? Yeah, he didn't. Um, he didn't know that I was going to, I did. I think I did text him um, the day of the trade um but he was like hectic i don't think he even texted me back that day um but yeah i mean i kind of immediately as soon as that trade went down and it was just such a bizarre situation where it was like you know he was traded on a tuesday and he would be playing that week so he literally got on a plane tuesday night flew to houston spent wednesday thursday friday going through game planning meetings to get to game plan for the broncos who he'd just been playing for for 10 years um, you know flew back to denver on saturday um and then played that game. And it was just this crazy because like literally his banner was on the side of the stadium. I mean, you know, stories high banner right above the visitor's tunnel. So it was like the bus literally like drove in and out underneath this giant banner of him in a Broncos uniform. Um, so it was, so I just decided like, that's going to be a very weird day. And I also, you know, I know, you know, I know him and he's, he feels things deeper, I think, than a lot of NFL players I've ever covered. You know, I think he's really, he's, he's very emotional. I knew that the trade rumors were really, really difficult on him. Um, you know, I think it was really telling that like, as soon as the trade rumor started, he actually called his mom and said, mom, I need you to come to Denver. And 
he flew her to Denver. And so she, so she could be there with him um, when this happened. And so I kind of just knew that it was going to be a really an emotional and kind of interesting day. And so, yeah, I mean, I cleared it. So I, I reached out to his mom. I, you know, was able to get the sideline passes and stuff that I needed and just decided that I was going to shadow him um, as much as possible. I mean, obviously I couldn't get into like the pregame locker room in Houston, but it was, we wanted to, to, to chronicle as much of that, of those kind of 12 hours or whatever it was as possible. And, and that's where, you know, I, I hadn't seen his mom since that day that I saw her in jail in 2010 um, wow. until that day last year in Denver. Um, I knew she was out. We had communicated a little bit, but I hadn't actually seen her in person. And, you know, I kind of, I walked up to her on the sideline and I said like, hi, Katina. And, and she said, Oh my God. And she like gave me a huge hug and was like telling everybody around like, this is Lindsay. This is the reporter who came to see me. And, you know, and it was like, you know, it had been eight years and I had talked to her only a, you know, a, a few times since then, but um, you know, so she really then but kind of came the conduit to the rest of that day of taking me through the week, you know, the days leading up to it, what he was like um, during the trade, what she experienced as she drove him to the airport and dropped him off. Um, and his father was also there who I had spent time with in Atlanta for that initial story. And, you know, so they, the family was really kind of the ones who opened it up. And then, you know, after the game, I went into the Houston locker room and the, the Texans PR decided that Demaryius wasn't going to do any media in the locker room. They were just going to bring him up to the podium. But um, he saw me and kind of like waved me over. So I had like a couple private moments to talk to him away from um, kind of away from everybody else. And, you know, and he was real quiet and stuff, but it was just, a, you know, there were a couple other Denver reporters who were like milling around, but was able to kind of see some moments and get some get some insight there that, you know, nobody else from a national perspective had. You know, a decent number of people who listen to this podcast are younger journalists who sort of, you know, seem to like the little tidbits and, and hints. And I got to say, I'm not saying like visiting a, a parent in prison is an extreme, but <laughs> if you can get in with somebody's parents or a brother or a cousin, and I don't mean get in in any sort of sneaky way. I just mean like it's a great gateway to the athlete. Oh, for sure. If, yeah. uh, if someone is like, oh, I, tr I trust this person. It, it's yeah. you. Don't you think like hugely helpful? Oh, huge. Yeah. And, you know, if you're, you know, I think a lot of young journalists coming up now, you're covering high schools and colleges, colleges, especially where they have, you have almost no access to the players themselves because, you know, college programs pretend that they're the CIA or something. And, you know, they actually try to limit your access to the parents as well and keep parents off limits. Um, but they're your best resources sometimes because nobody knows a guy better than his parents. Obviously, they're going to give you, you know, a biased take on their play, you know, on their son or daughter, because it's very rare. I think that a parent's going to say anything negative about their own child, but they will be that in when you maybe need something later. And if so, so that is the good access time. It is interesting. I'm working on a story right now about Kyler Murray and, you know, his dad has kind of managed his entire life. So I'm kind of going through this reporting process of right now of like, how much am I, how much, how much help am I going to get from the Murray family? Um, and how much am I going to need to go around them? So that's the other side is sometimes now these guys have been, you know, very managed career wise by their parents. But, um, so stay tuned. We'll see how that turns out, uh, in a couple of weeks. Well, I was going to, I was, I, you know, I've talked to other people on this podcast about this, but I think it's really interesting. Like, um, Kyler Murray has become my perfect example in my head of, 
the worst of the modern athlete. And I, I only mean from a media standpoint um, and from an interesting standpoint, like he really does seem like a robotic. My parent made me to be this thing. And all I did was eat, sleep and whatever, you know, sports and my career is managed by my, my parents. And I never really uh, went out to see a movie or had my first driving experience or played golf with my buddies or snuck out of the house at three in the morning to go see my girlfriend, Judy, in my car. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it seems like yeah, yeah. it is harder to cover guys now because they do not like Favre. I wrote a book on Favre. Say what you want about Favre. Like, his boyhood was fascinating and authentic and wild and crazy and weird. And I don't think you get many people like that or as many people like that these days. Yeah. Well, and it's certainly not quarterbacks, I think. I mean, I think kind of we're going to come into this era where, you know, quarterbacks have really been raised to be quarterbacks since they were, mm-hmm. you know, seven or eight years old. And, you know, I think Kyler Murray is the extreme example. You know, his dad was a quarterbacks coach and, you know, he was really, really groomed this way. And, you know, it's made him, he's, he is certainly guarded. And one of the things that I was, and I still am interested to see is, you know, he's an adult now. I mean, he's, he's 22 years old. He's still very young, but, you know, he's no longer kind of, you know, he, he is an adult and he's living on his own. And he has a PR staff with the Arizona Cardinals now to kind of manage some of the stuff. And if that's going to, um, you know, open him up at all, I'm, I'm guessing it probably won't, you know, I, I, I'm not expecting that all of a sudden he's going to become, you know, I don't know who's like, I don't know who the most open quarterback is, but you know, Philip rivers or, right. um, you know, one of these, you know, one of these guys or you know, or even like the Mannings or like a Favre, or, right. 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 Yeah. You know, he's probably going to be more, I mean, maybe best case scenario is a guy like Russell Wilson, who also, I mean, I think he's very, robotic. I mean, I don't know if that's the, the right word, but you know, I just I remember going my first my first road trip story for USA Today was in 2012. It was right as Russell Wilson was starting to break out and um they set me up to to kind of have a sit down Q&A with him and I remember like it was just it was so difficult to get him to say anything and then we published the Q&A and my editor called me and was so mad. He I mean, he like basically motherfucked me about like you didn't get him to say anything interesting. And I was like, this is October of 2012. And I was like, listen, this like dude just like he is a robot. He is a robot quarterback. And I almost feel validated that like in the seven years since that, he has still never said anything <laughs> interesting. So it wasn't it wasn't my fault that he didn't say anything <laughs> interesting in that Q&A. It was just that's how he was because, you know, he he is certainly guarded. So maybe that's kind of where we're where we're headed with Kyler. If he um, you don't not that you need any advice from me at all zero. But I was actually thinking when I was when you were talking about Kyler Murray. The story I would want to read about Kyler Murray, I swear to God, is, is this even fun for Kyler Murray? Like, Interesting. Is it yeah. fun? Like, Favre, Walter Payton, guys I wrote about from back in the day, like, they were so thrilled because the journey was so fascinating. Some guy from the Kill Mississippi who drank beers with his buddies and would throw up on the sidelines at the two-lane game. Or Walter Payton, some guy who fought through desegregation of his schools and went to tiny Jackson State and froze his ass off in Chicago. And it was all this winding snake-like journey. If you're programmed your whole life to be somewhere, it's almost like how fun can it be? You know right. what I mean? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and I get that. Um, I don't know exactly when this podcast will post. Maybe right about the time that 
the story will hopefully run, but um, I got this, I was told this anecdote that will be in the story. I'm totally spoiling it now, but um, from one of his high school teammates was, you know, cause they blew out, you know, that he was 42 and L as a high school yeah. quarterback in this, in Texas in like the biggest Texas classification. And one of his teammates was talking about how they, they actually got caught like on video in their state championship game, sitting on the bench yawning. And it became like a meme and everybody was making fun of them about like, look how bored, you know, Kyler Murray is playing high school football. And it was just because they had already been right. pulled because it was a state championship game and they were winning by like 40 points. Um, but then you look, you know, but you know, Peyton Manning was kind of like raised to be a quarterback forever. And he definitely thought it was fun. And, you know, you could see the fun moments, you know, from him. So, you know, maybe there's a little bit more of it about Kyler behind the scenes that we're just not seeing. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get, <laughs> trying to report yeah. out right now. It's kind of the fun of it all is like the, uh, the Herculean tasks and trying to dig in and trying to find something no one else found. That's don't you think yeah. that's kind of the joy of it all in a weird way? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And you know, we, we talk about access and families and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you think about what's a story that we can write about Kyler Murray that one hasn't been written yet. And two doesn't necessarily require a lot of cooperation from Kyler Murray. That's been kind of the reporting process that I've been going through right now. Yeah. My big thing has it been was- uh, yearbooks. I'm a big yearbook guy, so I'll like, yeah. like find the high school yearbook, find the high school football team and baseball team picture, and reach out to 12 guys in each of them. Like, that was always my yeah. thing, like, just yearbooks, you know, because there's someone out there who has some story about Kyler Murray stealing a blow pop from the convenience store or Kyler Murray's high school girlfriend <laughs> or, you know, like, there's always someone out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Them. Yeah. We talk about yearbooks. Now it's like they were all on Instagram. You know, these guys are young enough now that it's that the reporting a lot now is through following these like social media trails of like who tagged who. And um, you know, that's the way now we kind of do. We kind of do. It's like digital. Yeah. Almost. Let me throw a final thing at you. You were the Palm Beach Post and yeah. uh, you did. A, you did. You did a fair amount of Tebow. You were you had some Tebow time in uh, a lot his, of Tebow time. time. And I'm just kind of fascinated in hindsight. I have two parts here. Number one, did you find him? more like, wow, this guy's great and he's awesome, or almost like this is all a little weird and cult-like. And number two, did you think he'd be a good NFL player? Ooh. Um, the, cult, the cult-like thing, yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, so I covered UF from, like, it was, I was not there very long, but I covered them from like March of 2007 through May of 2008. So basically his mm-hmm. spring football, his Heisman year, and then the next set of spring football that also included like a basketball national championship year. Like, so that, that was kind of the era that I was there when it was really like blowing up. And it was actually kind of like the last year before it really blew up. Like I remember, you know, during that 2007 season, you could get one-on-one time with Tim. It was hard, but you could get, you could get little snippets of it here and there. By 2008, it was like all nothing. It was only at a podium, super, super managed. Um, there was like no access, you know, at that point you could still actually get access to his family, you know, so it was meeting, you know, Bob Tebow and Robbie Tebow's brother and his mom and everybody. Um, you know, so I could kind of, but it was growing, you know, I think the thing that always kind of, weirded me out or whatever was the it wasn't the football like there was like the football cult of Tebow and that was one thing and like I got that Uh because he was one of the greatest high school football players in the state of Florida and like in Florida history you know the 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 legends you know about him playing defensive tackle in the state championship game like that's true I saw it happen Um, you know he played a game with a broken leg and I didn't see that one happen but 
talk to enough people to confirm that it did happen, those kind of things. Um, you know, and then what he did at Florida where, you know, he came in during his freshman year for, you know, fourth and one against Tennessee and, you know, everything he did as Heisman year. So like, so I got like the football cult of Tebow. Um, it was like the other, it was the, like, the, the other people that would, that, that followed Tebow that always like weirded me out a little bit. Um, you know, the people who would send the really wacko emails and, you know, the people who still will like pop up time to time about how like, you know, Tebow would have made it in the NFL, but, the NFL didn't want him because he was a Christian and like, right. like, really? Like he had four chances. Like anytime people talk about how like, you know, Colin Kaepernick does, isn't good and doesn't deserve another chance in the NFL. It's like, you know, because you, because of the media circus or whatever, like Tim Tebow got lots of chances, you know, he, he went for the Broncos to the jets, to the Patriots, to the Eagles or the, the Eagles, Eagles, the Patriots. Yeah. I mean, he had four chances. He, he was on four NFL teams, you know, like, like we don't, Guys are going to get lots of chances, you know, regardless of the circus they come with. But, um, you know, so I, but I, you know, I think he is really, like, he's a nice guy, a genuine guy. He, like, I think he means really well. I just think he's kind of just grew up in this totally different, like, world that than a lot of us can imagine. And I did, there were times where I kind of would kind of question the motives of the people around him sometimes. Yeah. Um, the, using him for their message. And and I too I truly do believe that like he believes and like he is a true Christian, believes everything that he says. But, you know, there was also a lot of like the the evangelical missionary work and stuff that was going on kind of in his name was was a little was a little interesting. But um um and the terms yeah. is like being an NFL quarterback, you know, I think it became pretty obvious uh, early in his like time in Denver, just like watching him try to fit into an NFL practice and an NFL scheme that it just wasn't going to work unless he changed. You know, I think it was, you know, th th that year in 2011 where the Broncos like retooled their offense, like in the middle of the season to try to like make it work for him. I think that was like very impressive coaching and um, pretty incredible the way that they kind of survived with him. I think he didn't make it as an NFL quarterback because he wasn't willing to adapt um, to what they needed him to be. I mean, like I watch Taysom Hill now with the Saints and I'm like, mm -hmm. that's what Tebow should have been. Like Taysom Hill was Tim Tebow without the, I have to be a quarterback ego. Like Tebow would have right. been an incredible special teams player, you know, use him as like, you know, on, on punts, use him as like the you know, punt returns as like the, you know, punt protector, all these different, you know, all the different packages and stuff, but he was so adamant that he was going to be an NFL quarterback, but without doing the work to fix his deficiencies, you know, changes, right. you know, really work on his mechanics and, you know, all of the, you know, he was, he was like the textbook work harder, not smarter guy. And um, so, yeah, so I'm not really surprised that it never really worked for him as being a, an NFL quarterback. I am, you know, wistfully wonder what could have been, I think he could have had a different NFL career had he been more willing to do other things. I, I remember one thing I was thinking when Tebow was uh, when Tebow mania was at a tight and people were almost treating him as a Christ-like figure is yeah. every now and then where I live, the Jehovah witness come knocking on the door. Right. And they're always like 21 year old kids straight out of puberty trying to sell me on religion. And I'm always thinking, listen, buddy, I'm 40, I'm 47 years old. You got to send someone older. If you really want to sell me on this stuff, I'm <laughs> right? not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, 
You're not going to sway me at 21. It's, you're just not. If you want to sell me on Christianity, that's fine. It's not going to be a 21 year old quarterback who's 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 peddling that message to me. Oh yeah, and like, and I just you know per, you know in my own life personally, like I just think faith is just a very personal thing. Yeah. Whatever it is, whatever your faith is, and you know, I, I just always would hate the idea. You know, I just I just hate it being pushed on to you, whether it's you know any anybody, and I. And I think Tim a little bit was that, you know, he, it was very personal to him. And I think a lot of people used him to kind of push the bigger, you know, their bigger message, um, you know, to prophesize and stuff. And that's, that's what kind of made me uncomfortable. Well, Lindsay, listen, someone's about to get traded. And uh, I just got the email that school is closing soon. So. Oh, there you go. Well, Lindsay, go pick up your kid. Um, I appreciate (laughs) you doing this so much. Seriously. I'm a real big admirer of your work. I think you're great. And I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. I, I, I really appreciate you having me. I want to thank today's guest, Lindsay Jones, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Lindsay on Twitter at ByLindsayHJones and read her work in The Athletic. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs> <laughs>